Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. Today's track title is inspired by the song Naudeshu Samba Mujer, Don't Let Samba Die, by Alcione. listening to Quilombo, Ueldura do Negro, by Gilberto Gil. Gilberto was born in Salvador Bahia in 1942. He is a true Afro-Brazilian polymath. He's an extremely prolific singer, composer, multi-instrumentalist, but he's also an activist and politician. His musical production has consolidated him as one of the icons of the popular Brazilian music movement, Musica Popular Brasileira, or MPB for short. Go ahead, submit yourself in some MPB music. You won't regret it. Gilberto's remarkable career includes his service as Secretary of Culture under President Lula da Silva between 2003 and 2008. In Quilombo, o El Dorado Negro, Gilberto writes an ode to the Quilombos, those communities founded by enslaved Africans and Afro-Brazilians who escaped their enslavers. Gilberto sings. Existiu um El Dorado Negro no Brasil. Existiu como clarão que o sol da liberdade produziu. A black El Dorado existed in Brazil. It existed as the gleam that the sun of liberty produced. He also sings. Reviveu a utopia um por todos e todos por um, quilombo, it revived the utopia of one for all and all for one. Quilombo, everyone had to fall loving and fighting. This black El Dorado, Gilberto invites us to honor and celebrate. Now if you're curious, Quilombo El Dorado Negro is actually part of the soundtrack of the movie Quilombo. You can watch it for free on YouTube. Welcome to the first episode of our second season now they should samba mohair, don't let samba die. This is Mixtape. Welcome to the Mixtape Podcast. We are so excited to launch this first episode of Season 2, our Rhythms Season. We were inspired to do this season based on some of what we were hearing in Season 1 from our guests and our listeners about the history of Black life and movement in Afro-Latin rhythms. The rhythm we decided to start with is Samba. Well, 
I wanted to start with Samba because my only exposure to Samba, truthfully, has been the movie Rio. Have you seen that? Is that the one with the bird and the big nose? Yes. Oh my God, Lauren Wilmore drove me crazy with that, with that movie. <laughs> well, the movie Rio and the movie Dance With Me, which was also referenced when Lauren was here That's um, right. in season one, um, is my only idea of Samba. Um, but it's not the samba that we're talking about today. I don't think so. <laughs> so we also wanted to start with samba because our local communities in North Carolina and also in St. Louis, which is where I was before, have a samba presence. And for me, it's particularly interesting and it's, it's, a, it's a rhythm that is dear to me because I had a period in my life in which all I was listening to was samba music that's kind of coming from my brother, who's a singer who sings in Portuguese as well. So I, I got really deep into Brazilian music, MPV, you'll see as, as we move along. So I was really interested in starting with samba. Well, we had the privilege of speaking with three brilliant samba dancers, instructors and choreographers who have helped to shape some of our understanding of the dance, the rhythm, the movement, and the meaning Samba carries with it. And to provide us with a historical lens for our understanding of Samba as an Afro-Latin rhythm and as a national rhythm of Brazil, we spoke to Pablo Quejeiro, who is a dance instructor, choreographer, dancer, and director of Artístico Cubano, and a Samba researcher. We are so grateful for Adriana Blanco, who graciously translated our conversation with Pablo from Portuguese to English. For someone who knows almost nothing about Samba, mainly me, what are some of the key historical events that contributed to what it is today? É uma difícil e uma fácil pergunta para primeiro, um evento trágico that is an easy and a difficult question. It is difficult, but I can say that there are three important moments. The first one is the African slave trade in the 15th century. The second one is the creation of Quilombos, which were communities of Maroons in the 17th century. And the third one is the abolition of slavery in the 19th century. The first was the tragic event in the 15th century, the enslavement of African people brought to Brazil. As a consequence of the slave trade, enslaved Africans in Brazil were not able to manifest and live out their culture. The second happened in the 17th century, before the abolition of slavery. People who escaped their enslavers, known in English as Maroons, created their own communities, referred to as quilombos, where they built their own society. One of the more documented quilombos is the Quilombo dos Palmares. In the quilombos, they created spiritual and religious practices. Rhythmic, dance and movement practices such as batuki were also created. These practices can be considered as the roots of samba. Thanks to a collective consciousness, they were able to find ways to express themselves and manifest aspects of their art, dance and religion, even though all of those things were forbidden. 
Finally, after 300 years of the presence of Africans in Brazil, after the abolition of slavery, Afro-descendant people were free to create their own communities. And in those communities throughout Brazil, they manifested specific aspects of their culture. Abolition in Brazil happened rather late relative to other countries in Latin America. At that time, samba became a national rhythm. How do you think of that relationship between the late abolition of slavery and samba becoming a national rhythm? The world need, needed to uh, learn about that. Thank you for this. So, um, no, vamos lá, Portuguese. Pablo provided us with a historical chronology of diasporic practices in Brazil to lead us to the answer. He said, today, a lot of historians who study the African diaspora say many practices that have been manifested in the diaspora are actually philosophies and technologies or science. During the slave trade, five African nations were forced to come to Brazil. These nations were... Jeji people. Nago. The Nago people. Jesha. Jesha nation. Oyo. Oyo is the next nation. Cambinda. And Cambinda. Each nation had their own way of communicating. Some of the dialects they used include Yoruba, Kimbunda com K, e ainda tem o Kinkongo, que são povo congolês, então tem uma outra forma de falar. So he's also referring to the people, the King Kongu, which is also another way of, of describing them as the Congolese people, as, as would today be known as the Congolese people. They also had their own way of speaking and communicating. Cada nação ou cada tribo em África, eles cultuavam. Each nation cultivated into their worldview several orishas or forces of nature. When we speak about the Orishas, there are three ways we speak about them. These three ways of relating and communicating with these deities have their own dialects, rhythms, and styles. When all of those diverse nations of people were forced together in the cruelty of slave ships, they had to find a way to communicate with each other. That's how the grammar of communicating with drums emerged. Jongo is a dance and rhythm that is practiced a lot in Rio. It has been said that the speed and velocity with which the drums were played provided messages for people who were trying to run away from enslavement. If it was a slower rhythm, that meant you can walk. If it was a faster rhythm, you should pick up the pace. 
And if it was a very fast rhythm, that means it was time to run. These revolutionary acts of using communication through the drums in that way is what led to all the current rhythms of samba. These five nations have different ways of expressing their culture and manifesting the Orishas. But they had to hide the fact that they were practicing these revolutionary acts in such a way that the colonizer would observe them and say, oh, you're just dancing and playing. Pablo explains that in the 20th century, Getulio Vargas, a nationalist dictator, started to take power. He wanted to nationalize everything. This was a key moment when samba became recognized as a national culture. He made it representative of Brazil as a whole, even though it was really only representative of certain parts of this population. It is important to remember that before samba became nationalized and became a national symbol in this way, there were laws in place, similar to loitering here in the US, where it was illegal to practice capoeira, an Afro-Brazilian martial art, and to play samba openly in the streets. That law was only abolished in 2012. The police did not enforce the law regularly, but if they wanted to, they could go up to someone in the street and arrest them for dancing samba or doing capoeira. Wow, Pablo gave us so much information. In my case, as close as Colombia is from Brazil, geographically and even culturally speaking, it was still a big learning experience. I really, really enjoyed learning so much about the contribution of Africans and Afro-Brazilians in the construction of what Samba is today. Yeah, and we know it isn't a secret that I came into this conversation with a relatively blank slate in my understanding of Samba. And Rio doesn't count. It does not. <laughs> um, but I'm really captivated by the part of the history where Pablo discussed the role of the drums in jungle. For this specifically, the use of the drums as a tool for communicating was a fascinating detail I was grateful to learn. Listening to this history kind of makes you wonder how dancers here in the U.S. relate to and apply the history. To do that, we reached out to dancers in two dance communities that we have interacted with. First, we spoke with Caris Riley, a San Louis-based dancer and choreographer with an enthusiasm for samba. Caris works primarily with Afro-Latin genres of dance. Caris was also my dance partner under the instruction of our season one guests, Lauren Wilmore. This episode is airing during Black History Month here in the United States. Tell us about why it's important to talk about the impact of Samba on Black history. Sure. Um, obviously, the entire diaspora is full of beautiful and rich traditions, but something about Samba just hits different for me. Um, there are so many layers to how joy and resilience can be expressed in the midst of oppression in Black arts, specifically in Brazil. It really, for me, highlights Black people's ability to create beauty and find ways to thrive emotionally and artistically, even when we're maybe physically just surviving. 
Um, I mean, I'm still unpacking all of the layers of expression in Samba. Um, you hear a lot of teachers and dancers posting and talking about Samba um, having joy and adversity, but um, I'm realizing it's more than just performing happiness or smiling to escape oppression or poverty or your personal problems. Um, to me, there's a radical resistance in Black people doing what we want with our bodies and our music when the dominant voices in society want to label and stigmatize everything we do. Um, so it's not always that it's just happy, um, but there's a more nuanced sense of joy in that Black people are expressing our personal agency over our lives by continuing to innovate and create these dances and rhythms. Um, and I feel that finding agency in the most restricted situations is a thread that connects the different branches of the diaspora, regardless of what language we speak or who enslaved our ancestors. As a Black woman yourself, what do you conceive as the role of the Black woman in Samba? From what I have been told, um, I feel that um, Black women were integral in the um, in the sort of evolution of Samba. Um, but from what I understand, Samba in Rio specifically was enabled by a Black woman, uh, Chia Seata. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Please don't murder me. Um, I know I need to work on my Portuguese. Um, opening up her home for gatherings after the end of the workday. I think it was on Mondays um, when um, I think it was when slavery was abolished and people had started migrating to Rio for work. Um, and then this summer I took a Samba Jihoda course through Viver Brazil uh, with Vera Passos. And she talked about women in, in kitchens, transposing drum rhythms to spoons and, and knives on plates and things as they worked. So that's, that's my, um, impression of Black women in Samba's development. Can you tell us why the portrayal of the female body is so prominent in what many people know as Samba? Um, first of all, I really like your specification of what many people know as Samba. I think that's a, an important distinction to make since in the U.S. people think Rio, Carnival, um, there's a ton of geographic diversity in what Samba looks like from pretty much fully covered um, women in Bahia to the globaleza wearing just glitter and like a C-string. Um, so the comment I give to kids and conservative clients in Missouri when I teach is that one, it's hot in Brazil, and two, clothes are kind of an impediment to Rio-style Samba um, because it's so athletic. Um, beyond that, um, as someone who hasn't been to Carnival yet and has just seen videos and read about it, it seems like the parade format and the commercialization sort of create pressure to be more of a spectacle. Um, and I imagine that maybe majority male leadership probably has um, a bit to do with it as well. So I imagine it's somewhere in between climate, culture, um, and trying to be a spectacle to win Carnival. So as a U.S. born individual, I've traditionally thought of Black history within the context of the United States. 
But speaking with Karis really helped me to think about blackness outside the United States and throughout the diaspora. I really appreciated that from her. What stood out to you? Well, for me, uh, in particular, it was her hypothesis of how the commercialization of samba and the nature of parading in Rio correlate with how few clothes the globalista performers wear. It was an interesting one for me, given that parading was also part of a fairly conservative religious tradition. Thinking more about Samba's presence here in the United States, we spoke with Adriana Blanco, who is one of the directors of the North Carolina Brazilian Arts Project. How does the U.S. mainstream entertainment industry portray Samba? Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question. Um, I think that for the most part, folks really don't know about Samba at all. Usually when I say Samba, they think Salsa or they think Zumba. And they'll sometimes do a like interesting hybrid of like salsa and zumba. So you hear like zamba, uh, which is which is totally understandable. Um, I think that the the images that come across mostly that kind of make it over here have to do with Carnival in Huge Janeiro and Rio. And um, and so what they show a lot of times are just like the big beautiful floats. Um, and, and, and I just think they don't actually really make the connection even that the, the style of dance, Samba, is connected to Rio Carnival. So there's a lot of, of, I think, sort of like vague notions that there might be a connection between the two. Um, but mostly I think that they think of Samba when, when we think about clients or people trying to hire Samba dancers, they're thinking more about the costumes that um, are, tend to be revealing, sparkly, very luxurious, very beautiful, full of feathers. They also tend to imagine a particular body type, um, like uh, able-bodied, uh, more like along the lines of beauty standards connected to, you know, like white supremacist beauty standards, uh, but then also sort of like the exotification element is in there too. So, um, so I think those are the images that come to mind. Um, and, and so it's, uh, it can be pretty, it can be pretty toxic, um, but it also is like very attractive to people. How do you think that representation in the U.S. entertainment industry contrasts with the black origins of Samba? Yeah. Um, again, this is like from my personal experience, what I viewed, I'm not a dance scholar. Um, although I do a lot of research and, and do a lot of listening and a lot of reading, I, I would not uh, come close to considering myself a scholar on this topic. I would say um, the, the way that manifests like sort of that separation from the black roots of Samba is that folks tend to think, and I see this more like along the lines of dancers, that dancers tend to think that if they have a specific body type or a specific look, then they have the right to put on the costume that's so attractive to clients. And so they don't make the connection between like ancestral calling, um, between spirit, between, you know, the, the roots of Samba, which is a response to oppression, um, specifically oppression of, you know, of, of slaveholders, of colonizers, of like brutality, and of humans just trying to be human and just trying to free themselves in any space that they can. And the very particular environment of Brazil mixed with like uh, indigenous and all the different um, like black people from different parts of Africa, 
um, specifically West Africa, their cultures melding together, that's how Samba came about. And so it was a specific, so it's definitely Brazilian. You can't, it's African rooted, but you can't take the Brazilian experience out of it. It wouldn't be what it is. I think the, the problem is that folks think of it, it's overly sexualized here. And so, and it's also like, there's this like dominion piece where it's like, if I have a particular look or a particular body type, um, or if I have money to purchase a costume, or if I know how to move my hips in a sensual or sexualized way, then I have a right to represent Samba. And so it's so focused on the aesthetics, even though that's like the icing on the cake, um, that it, people really get rerouted in a direction that has nothing to do with what Samba really actually is. We went back to Caris and asked her whether she had experienced racism in her Samba journey. Actually, um, my experience of racism and microaggressions was what actually started my Samba journey. Um, I'd done a little bit of choreography um, like in high school, but I didn't latch on to Samba until college. Uh, the program I was studying was majority white and ballet sort of focused and I didn't feel valued. Like I wasn't being cast in things. Um, I wasn't always being given corrections in class um, or um, being really, having my professor really pay attention to me until I took a class called Dances of Brazil with a, um, with a black uh, instructor who was there for a couple of years. Um, and I was cast based on my ability to pick up the movement. So I kind of imprinted on it as a refuge from, I guess, racial isolation. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my um, encountering of racism in my Samba journey. The goal of the podcast is to uncover racism and develop ways to be anti-racist in our interaction with Afro-Latin and African dance forms. Speaking with Adriana, her commitment to honoring the roots of Samba was clear. We wanted to ask her about her relationship with Samba as a white person. Let me get a little personal, if you don't mind. Brazilians in general, Afro-Brazilians in particular, have a very strong connection, cultural connection, with this music and dance. As a non-Brazilian, non-Afro-descendant person, how do you build that relationship with Samba? Yeah, that's a, that's, you know, it's a great question. Uh, there's a song, there's a, there's a lyric where um, it says, Eu não nasci na samba, mas a samba nasceu em mim. Or it means like, I was not born in samba, but samba was born in me. So I was not born into samba. And so I, honestly, that's the best way that I can describe it. I, I studied abroad in Brazil in college about like 14 years ago, oh my God. Um, and, and, I, and I went and I was in Salvador and I, and, um, I got into Capoeira um, and my first samba lesson was with a beautiful capoeirista, um, her name, her capoeira name was Samba Deira, so like samba dancer, uh, because we were all using her capoeira names, I don't even know what her actual real name is, and I'm on a mission to find out who she, what her name, like, give, like, you know, given legal name is, so I can find her and be like, you gave me my life, you know, um, but it was, it, I think, like, the, I went to a concert, and I heard it, I heard it, and, like, um, I've shared the story with, with people, and this is pretty deeply personal, but when I first heard Samba, like my heart broke. 
because it just had, it just was the most beautiful music. And I remember the concert I went to was, uh, she's, uh, her name is Teresa Cristina and you should listen to her after this and just do yourself a favor and listen to her. And it was the most beautiful, uh, I don't know, it was just the most beautiful, I never heard anything that sounded quite like that. I mean, I, you know, growing up in um, a household where, you know, my, some of my descendants are from Spain and, and being surrounded by Latinos my whole life, you know, I'd heard samba, I'd heard lambada, like, da, na, 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 na. you know, uh, grew up listening to all of that, but I never really made the, the connection and really to understand what samba was. So when I heard it and it's like true form live with this woman that is a Cristina singing, um, it was like not a happy moment. It was a longing that I've never experienced and never felt before. And so that really just like set me off to try to figure out like, how can I, it's not like I wanted it for myself. I just wanted to be, I wanted to participate. I saw people dancing. I saw people moving to it. And I was like, I want my body to be free like that. I want my body to move like that. I want to respond to this. And so I think that, I think that was the, the moment of conception for <laughs> Samba inside of me. Um, and since then, I've taken a lot of twists and turns, um, you know, studied Capoeira and was really into that for a long time and, and had some, some great Samba teachers on the side that, uh, for, for many different reasons, wasn't able to study um, as much as I really wanted to just because of availability, like their availability. But I would like to name Sonia Pessoa. Um, she lives in uh, she lives in Washington, D.C. I, I lived in D.C. and was training Capoeira. She taught classes there at our academy. She taught me a lot. She uh, She's from um, Bahia, so that type of samba is different. And um, I'd like to name her for as someone who, who, who taught us a lot and um, and she, she actually is the founder of the um, Afro-Brazil Fest in DC that happens every year. It's pretty awesome. So, yeah. In the last year, three really big historical events have happened. The social movement that emerged from the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others as well. Of course, the COVID pandemic that started at the beginning of last year, and finally, the recent insurrection. We decided to ask Caris and Adriana about this. In your opinion, how has the pandemic and the social justice movements of 2020 had an impact in keeping Blackness at the center of Samba in the United States? Mm, that's actually something I've, I've noticed. I've noticed um, non-Brazilian Sambistas, especially white non-Brazilian Sambistas going really hard on the social justice um, and resistance aspect of Samba, and that kind of makes me really happy. Um, I think part of that is, um, you know, people can't have physical classes, so um, we get a chance to interact more over the internet with Brazilian artists, which is great. And I think a lot of um, the Brazilian artists that are English speaking and have access to students here tend to go really heavy on the culture and the, the the resistance rhetoric, um, which educates us um, in America. Um, so there's definitely been a recentering of blackness, and I don't, I don't see as many U.S. sambistas just doing the whole bikini shake around, ha ha ha, um, thing um, so flippantly anymore, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I want to make sure that it's known that, like, look, there is representation of of um, of of black folks in in samba in the United States. It can, needs to be much better. 
like we're, we're not close to being satisfied. Um, I want to answer that question in two different ways. I want to start with, uh, with, with my company and how the uprisings have impacted um, our company. I'll say that um, I don't know if it has to do with just like the amazing teachers I've had. Um, I will give them like sole credit and probably like my social work training, like let's be real. Um, and, and probably my training as a yoga teacher. I've, I've pretty much, the NC Brazilian Arts Project has always tried to center blackness. Like it's really like we've always, that, that we haven't, nothing has like, we haven't been like, oh God, we need to do this now. Like it's always been about that. Um, we've always named that. We always acknowledge the roots, like before every class we talk about where it comes from. So like in, in many ways, like we haven't really had to like shift gears cause that's kind of what we've always done. Now, um, can we do better? Yes. And are we trying to find ways to do better? For sure. And um, part of the ways in which we're trying to do better is like, how do we represent and center blackness in our social media presence? Because the combination of the pandemic and not being to go out there and getting to educate the way we usually like to, and, and the way we represent ourselves in costume, the way we represent, the way we train, who we train with, all of that, making sure we're centering black Brazilians and, um, and paying them, right? And making sure that it's known that we are paying them, that we are paying the source, that they are getting um, they are getting a financial benefit and a social benefit more so even than we are, right? That's, that's really important. So making that like a huge priority as opposed to like gigging where like before that was a big part of what we did, um, which continues to be important because the gig money, that's what lets us pay for our studio space. That's what lets us pay for like master teachers to come and teach. Like we need the gig money because <sighs> capitalism, but anyway, but we haven't had, we haven't had that many opportunities. So we've been able to we've been able to dig in a little bit more. I'll say from an outside perspective, like how have the uprisings like impacted the way Samba, like centering blackness in Samba here in the United States. I would say, um, I, there's one example, there's a, a, a costume design a group company called, I think they're called Real Samba Costumes. They sent out a memo and they were like, hey, we're not gonna be selling our costumes for a while. Um, and, and if we do, we will only sell to companies that we know uh, connect to the roots, center blackness, center social justice, know what the hell they're doing, actually can Samba, you know? And, um, and there's a, they got a lot of backlash. And I was like, yes, because that's what happens. People will buy the, they buy the costume and they'll, they'll have no context and they'll post something on Instagram. And you're just like, okay, you're wearing this like magnificent loaded Thing. And I say loaded because those costumes and sort of like the sensuality and the nakedness connected to it, a lot of that was originated for the white male gaze. So it's like, do you know what you're putting on your body and all the different things it symbolizes? It looks like you don't because of how nonchalant you are with the way you're posting about it. So, um, so there's that. And then also the uprising for me, um, and I think for a lot of other Samba dancers I've seen, um, because there's so many, there've been so many, like, especially like brilliant black women who have been talking about this and doing this forever and ever and ever. Um, but now like they're, they're being centered more, which is so important. It should have happened a billion years ago. They're giving us uh, language. They're giving us words and a framework to describe maybe what we already felt inside on how to center blackness. They're giving us a path. And so, um, I've, I've benefited so much from, from what I've learned from, from black women just online, you know, when they're just talking, um, articles, teachers, people who've been, you know, who've been doing this kind of 
like social justice work through the arts like their whole life and they're like generations deep in doing it um you we've been able to see it more it's it's more you know there are more documentaries on like netflix and stuff you can't it, it's like it's there's no excuse anymore there the framework is there the words are there you can put into words now what was harder to find the words for because all these brilliant black women have done that work for us and um and that's how that that's the impact that i've seen from the uprising this summer as you are more likely aware, there was a predominantly white extremist, white supremacist insurrection in January. Do you draw any connections between what you know about the history of Samba and these events? Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. Um, so someone who grew up in Brazil or has more knowledge of the history of state involvement in Samba would probably have a more political answer, but... My first thought is that news coverage makes me think of the double standard that faces Black bodies, um, both here and in Brazil. Um, originally, Samba wasn't accepted as something um, appropriate, um, but it was popularized as a symbol of Brazilian identity um, once white people found value in it and began to appropriate um, symbols of Black arts and identity as mainstream. Um, so the way the news coverage is um, sort of portrayed um, the rioters and mobs um, that happened in the in the U.S. Capitol um, versus the way um, Black Lives Matter protests were were viewed, um, just the first thing I think of is a double standard. Another important aspect of our podcast is taking in information and acting on the information that we've received. How would you encourage someone who is just getting into Samba and wants to think about how to build a relationship with the dance and the culture? What recommendations would you have? Yeah, I think um, nowadays, compared to when I was first starting, there are basically no excuses to connect with teachers who have, um, whether it, you know African Brazilian teachers or folks who have really done their work, traveled to Brazil a lot, and um, and have really you know created relationships with people in the Samba community. I think that's what's so important. It's not just like, um, and I think you know I've, I've heard some conversations about you know about dance in general. You don't just like get your certificate if you're a guest in someone else's culture. You know you go to school for it. you have to you have to build community, build relationships, and so. At this point, you pretty much just have to put the hashtag Samba in and use critical thinking skills. You know, if you see the people that are on Instagram and they're um, exhibiting themselves training, if they talk about the roots in their post, if they're actually using Samba music, um, how do they represent themselves in their costuming, if they're educating uh, and you know, you can, you can look up there. There's some good companies here in, in the United States. And then plus you can, now, um, you know, I think for many years, folks could kind of fake the funk in their samba, but since Instagram started getting really big, you're getting these pasistas, these like badass dancers from the comunidade, um, from the, the communities where the samba schools are, are made out of like doing their thing. And it's like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Which one would you like to practice and train? Like, 
little bitty teeny tiny hip situation and like overly sensual faces or like crazy ass big hips footwork and um soul you know <laughs> like it's you you see there's no there's no to me to me i'm like i i don't see how how folks could be confused now um but yeah you know you can ask your your local capoeira academy they can uh they they're they're still like a great source right like they're a really really great source capoeira academies are great um like Fuente, like a great uh, like source, because most of the time when you train Capoeira, the people that they train all the time, so it has to be a cat, an academy that has like classes all the time, which means it's a lot of dedicated people. Um, and, uh, and so usually they have a lot of connections to other like types of Brazilian art forms. And so if they don't offer it there, they might know someone who does. Relatedly, you are the business owner of the North Carolina Brazilian Arts Collective and in Charlotte specifically. So how do you think of your role in preserving the roots of Samba and making sure people know them? What I'm hearing so far is you're building community, you're linking up with other instructors, Instagram has become an important platform. What else? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, originally the, the NC Brazilian Arts Project was created um, by myself and by my husband and by Jenny Geska, mostly because like we wanted to institutionalize the capacity to learn more and to train more. And, um, and I didn't, we, like my intention at first when I was like teaching class and stuff was not, um, I was teaching class way before I knew what I was doing. My capoeira contra mestre was like, boom, we need someone. And so it's kind of like, but I did my homework, right? So like, I never stopped training. So I got better, I've gotten better. Um, you don't want to see my videos from like six, seven years ago, you just don't. Um, but, the, but the reality is, uh, I, I think my intention, and I, and I feel good that like, I've been in alignment with my intention this whole time is to bring education, to bring opportunities for learning and learning about all aspects of African Brazilian culture. Because when you do that, I think in this country, we have a really hard time looking at ourselves and looking at the ways in which we uphold systems and perpetuate oppression. And so sometimes taking a couple steps back and viewing it from a different cultural lens can like crack open a door that might have been like sealed because of ego, because of fear, because of all these things. And so when you look in that direction, you might have, or you open your eyes a little bit more, it really, it, it can have an impact on the way you interact in, in, your, in your society that you're living in. And so that's always been part of my intention is like, how do I educate myself to dismantle oppressive systems? And how do I free my body? I mean, that's what Samba is about. That's what Capoeira is about. It's like, it's the manifestation of freedom in your body. The more moves you, the more you train, the more moves you learn, the more cool things your body can do, the deeper you go into history inevitably, um, the more freedom you, you achieve for yourself and others. I, I really love that idea of uh, Samba as an expression of freedom um, and how it manifests and in, in how the body moves with Samba because I think that's once, once you are, you may not notice the connection if somebody doesn't tell you and you're not necessarily from Latin America and Latin America is a little bit easier because we're closer so we kind of know each other's culture. But if, you, if you're not there, it's kind of harder. But if somebody mentions or explains like, like the one you did, it's an expression of freedom, then you understand what the movement is actually telling you and, and yeah. why the movement is so free. Um, and spirit, right? Because a lot of the movements come from, you know, it's got, it's rooted in, in inspiration from, from like worshiping through dance. So worshiping the Orisha, 
Um, so there's, so there's that too. And so of course, like engaging in spiritual practice that was indigenous to people who were forced in, into slavery, that was another manifestation of like internal freedom, right? Of spiritual freedom that maybe like your body wasn't free in that in a particular way um, that you could, you could access, you could access freedom in other ways. Wow, what a gift to have received all this information about Samba's history and how it's experienced by those who practice it. For me, I know I'm definitely interested in learning a Samba step or two pretty soon. Right after recording with our guest, I was actually listening to Samba music for the entire week. Well, look at that. <laughs> In my case, I was very happy to find my way back to Brazilian music. I really, really love Brazilian music, Samba, Fajal, Bosanov. I've also added some of those songs to our mixtape playlist. It keeps growing and growing. Make sure you give it a listen, follow it on Spotify or Apple Music. Well, how do you think I was listening to Samba music? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, we also want to end by thanking our guests who were very generous in giving us part of their days and time to share knowledge. They shared a ton of resources with us. We'll make sure that we share those on our social media for those who want to learn more. Thank you for listening. This is Mixtape. Mixtape.